Howdy, y'all. We are the Dark Ozarks. I'm Lisa. And I'm Alex. And we're here to explore the dark history, mysteries, and legends of the Ozarks. We talk about everything from cryptids to UFOs to true crime. If you can think of it and it makes your skin crawl, we probably talk about it. Catch us on Branson Podcast Network and find us online at our socials at Dark Ozarks. Welcome to the Dark Ozarks, UFOs in the Ozarks. One of our favorite topics and unsolved mysteries. And the Ozarks is the site of the only real-time scientific investigation of a UFO event that lasted months back in 1973. Pretty unique. Yes, and we will get back to that in a minute. Mark your calendars for upcoming live events. Next, coming up March 1st at the Fox Theater in Springfield, join Lisa and Alex for an evening of history, legends, and the paranormal. Details on the Dark Ozarks Facebook page. Visit ParanormalScienceLab.com for tickets and more information. We encourage you to check out Always Buying Books in Joplin, Missouri, in person and online on Facebook and at the website AlwaysBuyingBoods.com for all of your reading needs, including a large section on the paranormal, history, and more. Not to mention the building is haunted. Tell Bob and Elise we sent you. We also want to thank Beard Engine Brewing Company in Alba, Missouri. Beard Engine Brewing is the only English-style brewery in Missouri and has been twice named Missouri's best brewery by the Missouri Brewers Association. Great beer and great food in a historical building with a noir past. And yes, their building is also haunted. Tell Nate and Tiff that we sent you. So, UFOs. I think everybody thinks of Roswell when you, when you say UFO. Yes, and often they think that's the beginning of the subject, but it, it goes way back. Right. Well, you know, it might be the beginning for pop culture, but right. pretty much as long as there's been humans around, there's been sightings of strange things going on in the sky. And especially pretty much since we've been writing things down, we've been writing about it. Yeah. I mean, we didn't have Facebook back in the day, so we were kind of limited on how to pass pass the time. <laughs> um, so let's kind of get into some of those more antiquated stories. Okay. And, well, I shouldn't say story. Story would imply that... Uh, I have a little tale to to go into, but uh, there's countless documented instances where there's been something in the sky, and a lot of people saw it. Did you have one? No, not not in particular. Okay, well, let's see. 173 BC. That's been a couple months ago. <laughs> Quote at Lanuvium. I'm assuming I'm saying that right. A spectacle of a great fleet was said to have been seen in the sky. I wish I could tell you where Lanuvium was. I'm going to assume that it is somewhere in Europe that sounds like some Gallic tribe, if uh, if I've ever heard it. Yeah. That was subjugated by, by Rome. Less than 100 years later, in 104 BC, the people of Emeria and Tudor observed weapons in the sky rushing together from east and west. Those from the west being routed. Thus Pliny, who uses the term arma... Obsequence version is essentially the same. Plutarch calls the weapons, quote, flaming spears and oblong shields, but may be merely glossing and expanding, since he did note that at the time it was night. Uh, the phenomenon in question might be the streamers of an aurora borealis. Right. And so I think something to point out, something of note here, is that a lot of these old accounts and old, uh, you know, sightings. They're going to be compared to weaponry. An oblong shield, a spear, uh, a great fleet. And of course now, you know, 
you 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 know it's a cigar shape in the in the sky or uh, ships. Ships, yeah. What I do like about this account here is that it does point out that there were a lot of naturally occurring phenomena that, you know, over 2,000 years ago, you would be hard-pressed to be able to describe or explain what was going on. If You know, I won't say it's common, but it has happened where you have the auroras mm -hmm. dipping a lot further south than they normally would. And for people who had never seen that before, you know, that might be the coming of the end times, uh, you know, a great war in the sky. You don't know, you know. Exactly. So it's a uh, it, very uh, interesting take and something that humans will pretty much do no matter when or where we are in time. That's true. Another thing that is interesting, though, is that these the writers the the philosophers and writers who are writing these accounts down they didn't always just take them for granted as you know wholeheartedly literally this is what's going on right livy in fact um, mentioned that um, there were a number of these kinds of events during the second punic war and he speculated that perhaps there was mass hysteria going on because of people being anxious over the war. So, well, I find that interesting because that's the same kind of analysis that we get when you hear scientists and sociologists critique modern UFO encounters. Right. We like to project a lot, don't we? Yes, we do. Yeah. And, I mean, admittedly, there, there was probably good cause for anxiety regarding the Punic Wars. Well, definitely. Definitely. Um, but, interesting that perhaps you may have a bit of a pattern that in those kinds of times of stress and anxiety, get a spike in similar kinds of sightings. Right. Right. And you know, it is, like I said, so many of these are going to revolve around weapons of war or during wars um mm -hmm. you know and right here you know the most famous quote-unquote sky army appeared in the spring of approximately 65 a.d over judea mm -hmm. let's see uh, josephus reports on the 21st of the month artemisium i think i got that right there appeared a miraculous phenomenon passing belief. Indeed, what I am about to relate would, I imagine, have been deemed a fable were it not for the narratives of eyewitnesses and the subsequent calamities which deserve to be so signalized. For before the sunset, throughout all parts of the country, chariots were seen in the air and armed battalions hurtling through the clouds and encompassing the cities. So, that is another thing, is we're not just... We're not prattling off some bloke out in the forest who thought he saw something skirting through the sky. Like these are all events that were widely observed. Yes. Um. And and that is something to keep in mind is that well, one mass hysteria is definitely a thing. It mm. it is it has there are documented cases of you know mass hallucinations. Yes. Um. Now, and I'm not trying to say that this is what that is, but when you have one person coming to you and saying, "Hey, I just saw, you know, a fiery chariot." blazing through the sky you might look at him and be like you need to go get help because uh you're seeing stuff right now when you have a hundred people come to you and say they all say the exact same thing puts a little bit different of a twist on what's being reported especially when it's throughout the country I right mean, exactly not not only a lot of people but over a, a wider area right and uh, th there's a couple different categories that, w that we have here of these, you know, antique UFO sightings. Um, you want to talk about fiery globes? Sure. Um, and I and I, I think it's important already to 
to, to mention that you have you have some sightings that could be the aurora or you know something atmospheric, but there are others that are definitely described as having shape that would be aerial fighting or combat, right? Particularly, which doesn't seem to be the same thing. And which also is a lot more like modern accounts of UFOs. But then you also have fiery globes. And they often will be described as a globe of fire coming and and hitting the ground. But the interesting thing is they often are not described upon examination as being rock or anything that you would ascribe to being a meteor. Right. I mean, there's some accounts talking about seeing uh, double or triple suns. Yes. You know, and uh, it's all very interesting. Well, and another another version of this is, instead of a fiery globe, is that sometimes they would describe a second or a mock moon at night, which was very bright, so that um, it's not fiery, but it, there's a very large light in the sky that mimics the moon. There is an object there, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so moving on here, we, we, we got accounts of fiery globes, but uh, I think a, a phrase that everyone's familiar with here, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about close encounters of the first kind, not the fourth kind, unfortunately. Those are <laughs> a little hard to come by. Yeah. Um, but close encounters of the first kind. And for those that don't know, an encounter of the first kind is a, well, as, as the name would suggest, a, a close encounter. You are, you're witnessing a, a UFO, some sort of phenomena up close but the only uh the only trace of it is going to be what you saw with your eyes right it it, you don't actually interact with it and and there's no yeah there's no physical evidence left and i find very interesting the this account uh, from plutarch of an encounter that happened in 74 bc when a roman army under uh eucalus was about to engage the forces of King Mithridates the Sixth, and basically what happened is, the, as he says, the sky burst asunder, and a huge flame-like body was seen to fall between the two armies, and it was described most like a wine jar in shape and color like molten silver. Sounds an awful lot like metal, right? And the, both armies, they were so astonished that they fell back and didn't fight that day. So, and I find it very hard that you would have two armies, two professional armies that would have been completely dissuaded or so astonished if it had just been a meteorite that had right. hit the ground. Right. I mean, and you could almost assume that that might have been siege weaponry, you know, but something, something that would make two sides decide not today. Yeah. We're not doing this today. That's uh that's very intriguing. And and in fact he goes on to say that there were thousands of witnesses. Right. So two large armies and the and it was described as bright silvery color and again that would not be a meteorite because when when they fall they tend to be black. Right. So that that definitely is an interesting one. And that's kind of one of the, the unfortunate things with such old counts is that barring, you know, the testimony of the, the people that were there sometimes 2,000 years ago, there's not much to go on. And when you, you know, when you hear stories like this that you're just like, wow, you know, 
as a researcher, as someone who's interested in, in history and the paranormal, like you, it just flips a switch in your brain and you, you want to go start looking. But unfortunately, there's not a whole lot to go that, that you can find. Um, right. And I think we got the first kind. So let's talk about the second kind. Okay. You know, and what differentiates this from Close Encounters of the First Kind is that with the second kind, you're going to have, there's going to be some sort of physical trace. There's going to be something left behind by whatever this object was that you can interact with. We've got accounts of rains of strange material. They were, and this was frequently reported, mm -hmm. which, uh is fairly analogous with a lot of modern reports of UFOs. Yes, that, that, that tends to be the most common type of trace evidence that's reported today. Right. In modern reports, there's been a, a whitish gossamer substance dubbed angel hair mm -hmm. uh, that is, on rare occasions, said to have been dropped from a UFO and usually vanishes fairly quickly once mm -hmm. it's, it's hit, it hits the ground. Other reports are, you know, glassy fibers that are left behind uh, after a UFO takeoff or a, a chalky substance that, mm -hmm. that's, that's on the ground. But what's interesting here is that in AD 196, the historian Cassius Dio wrote, and I quote, a fine rain resembling silver descended from a clear sky upon the forum of Augustus. I did not, it is true, see it as it was falling, but noticed it after it had fallen, and by means of it I plated some bronze coins with silver. They retained the same appearance for three days, but by the fourth day all the substance rubbed on them had disappeared. Other falls in which a solid, whitish substance was involved include two, quoted, rains of chalk. Uh, one in... Callus in 214 BC, and another in Rome itself in 98 BC. Interesting. Unfortunately, that's the only information that exists on those accounts. And it's like I said, you know, thank you, Mr. Cassius Dio, for letting us know what you found, but unfortunately, that's all we got. Right. And, and, that, and of course, that is part of the problem with even accounts today is often the trace evidence does not seem to last very long. So even if it's observed, then it's not there anymore, and that can be used to dispel credibility. But doesn't mean it didn't happen either. Right. So I just find it very interesting that there's a lot of parallels with the accounts from 2,000 years ago to what is reported now. And not all of it can be explained away by just terminology of the day or a description of technology of the day versus now. Right. I'll go on record and say, as much as I, I want to say, you know, I saw a UFO or, you know, I saw a ghost or, mm -hmm. or, or something of the nature, it's our duty to disprove it every time we see it. Mm -hmm. And that is the bittersweet thing about a lot of this. And this is true for 2,000-year-old reports and is true for two-month-old reports, mm -hmm. is that that trace evidence is usually gone by the time it gets to you. You know, and a lot of these, these accounts here are so fanciful that it, it's why I, I included the one about the this going on at night. And right. it could be the, the auroras. Because like I said, I, I want to believe that, you know, I want to believe, mm -hmm. you know. But I also want to debunk, and I want to prove it. I want I want to actually be able to say, like, that's evil. That, that that's not from this world. Mm -hmm. So let's uh, wind the clock forward just a little tiny bit. Let's... Uh, a couple thousand years. It's a blink of an eye, depending <laughs> on your frame of reference. Um, it's all relative anyway. Mm -hmm. That's true. So let's take it from ancient Rome and let's bring it to 
the turn of the century. Well, almost. Almost to the turn of the century. The last turn of the century. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Got a couple in there now. Um, and specifically, 1897. Good year. Yes. And it certainly was for the development of UFO lore because technically this technically this is not about UFOs, but it goes a long way to get us there. Right. Um, and that is the airship scare of 1897, which even the name sounds odd because why would someone be scared of airships and, and everything? But again, it goes back to the idea of mass hysteria. Right. And, you know, that, that time period coming up to the end of the 1800s, mm-hmm. there was such rapid and monumental growth in technology that was truly life-changing. Yes, everything from electricity uh, in your home to telephones to to gramophones to um, diesel and gasoline engines and and you had motor cars. Radio. uh, Radio. Well, not quite radio. 1920 was when it was practical, but Hmm. we were almost there. But something that had been experimented with for quite a while was a way of having heavier than air transportation, you know, airships. Uh, Before that, there were air balloons, and they had been around for a couple hundred years at that point. Right, and people had been falling out of them for a couple hundred years. Right, and for several decades, there were men experimenting with basically early forms of airships or airplanes, and not successfully... And some losing their lives uh, doing so. I was about to say we should probably take a second to, you know, at least respect the fact that these <laughs> these men were, uh, you know, pushing things off cliffs. Yes. With no guarantee that it was, they were going to survive. <laughs> and, and yes, I mean, this is experimentation as raw as it gets. But with all of the technology that had been developed... And the progress being made, even though by 1897 we did not have successful flight yet, it was pretty clear it was coming. Right. So the idea of airships was something that certainly was not unfamiliar. Plus you have, I think another thing people don't think about is during this time period, you have H.G. Wells writing, you have Jules Verne writing, so they are bringing the, the concept of almost futuristic technology to the masses in fiction, m- m- much like media does today with, say, Star Wars or Star Trek or whatever. Well, I mean, you know, yesterday's sci-fi is today's reality. Exactly. So, And that exactly was what was being, you know, in the process. In fact, the, the fur, I mean, you're talking five years before the Wright Brothers. Right. And you're talking 10 years before the first um, deployment of airships by the U.S. Army. Uh, dirigibles. Dirigibles, yes. But in in the parlance of the time, it have been airship. Correct. So, again, so people were anticipating things happening. But it's, it's really not clear exactly where this started conceptually. We know where it started physically. It started in Sacramento, California. And that's really interesting because it really started with one sighting, and we have quite a few details. November 17th, 1896 was actually the beginning of it. 
and hundreds of residents reported seeing an illuminated craft flying low over the city between 6 and 7 o'clock in the evening. That's pretty detailed with a lot of people. It's a, it's a lot better than Cassius Dio's account. Yes, yes. But it did not stop there. For one thing, the, the craft was described much like a dirigible, an oblong mass propelled by fan-like wheels. In this particular uh, instance, some of the witnesses described it as being propelled by fan-like wheels operated by four men who worked as if on bicycles. That's a lot of detail. It's almost right out of a, a Jules Verne. Jules Verne. So. Exactly. And and again, I think I think that you do have pop culture informing people, giving them context. So they may have seen something and, oh my, that looks like Jules Verne. Something right. Jules Verne wrote about. And I can see that happening. Now, on the one hand, a lot of people ascribed these accounts as mass hysteria. Right. And they, they may well have been, to an extent, or at least later accounts might have been his, hysterical or at least copycat. But ironically, over the course of about a year, there were tens of thousands of people who reported this across the country. Right. And that's what I find really fascinating. Because um, it, it started in Sacramento. Mm-hmm. Almost like the course of the day, it just seemed to kind of wash across the United States. Yes. Um, first, it spread into Oregon, Washington, Nevada, Arizona. Ironically, in the beginning, there wasn't much press coverage. So we can't really blame the press for fueling it in the beginning. But accounts kept spreading and spreading east through the Midwest. There were I know there were uh, over 200 separate incidents reported in Nebraska and Kansas. Wow. And you just find that kind of odd. I'm sure a few ended up being copycats or hoaxes, but it just, just a lot. Well, so, you know, you, you mentioned copycats, you mentioned hoaxes. You know, you're an attorney. Mm-hmm. So uh, what, what's the one thing you, you, you really look for in a witness? Details. Details. You want credibility. You mm-hmm. want somebody that's going to speak that people will trust what they say. Yes. And uh, I think what's really interesting is that, you know, you, you know, you mentioned, you know, Kansas, Nebraska, work on our way east. But in May of 1897 in Arkansas, mm-hmm. probably some of the most credible observers you could have at the time were uh, two lawmen. We have their names. Mm-hmm. Constable uh, John Sumter and Deputy Sheriff John McLemore. They were uh, carrying out their duties investigating uh, cattle wrestlers. Mm-hmm. And they encountered what uh, they described as a cigar-shaped airship. They gave a very detailed account, including, and I find this really interesting, uh, their interactions with its human-bearded occupant, mm-hmm. uh, who informed them that he was en route to uh, Nashville, Tennessee, to demonstrate the aircraft. And that wasn't an isolated incident. No. You know, and this this is one of the first big, you know, uh, witness testimonies, if you will, that is ascribed as being like the fund, you know, the foundation, pardon me, of like UFO lore. Yes. And th- this is, uh, these are two guys that their livelihood, their everything, their name is, is it rests upon their words, their mm-hmm. credibility. And they're willing to go out and say some pretty whimsical stuff that, you know, at this point, a lot of people have heard about, you know, these airships and stuff. 
and we do start to transition into the point where we are getting press coverage, you know, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of accusations going on about, you know, fake journalism, you know, they're stoking the fire, just trying to get that readership, get those paper sales. Right. And these are two guys that really don't have a whole lot to gain as far as being a lawman goes. But a lot to lose. Absolutely everything to lose. So I, I just think that, because, and that's something that, you know, once we kind of transition to more more modern accounts, you get stories of like Air Force pilots and stuff that are describing these. And these are these are people that you, you trust what they say, you know, yeah. to get to their position. Like you can't you can't BS. Well, and besides that, you know, their careers on the line, they might never fly again. You know, you know they're considered crazy. Yeah, you're operating a, you know, billion dollar plus piece of machinery and if one of your superiors is like, this guy is uh, a little little crazy. We'll pull you right out of that seat. Right. But they're still willing to go on record and, and say, this is what I saw. So. And, and that's what happened with Sumter and McElroy. They, they not only gave accounts, and so it's not only an account they gave to a newspaper so that you wonder, did the newspaper embellish? They right. signed affidavits. Right. And ironically, there was... A, newspaper who hot springs newspaper i forget which newspaper in arkansas actually kind of questioned the pine bluff press eagle yes kind of brought up the question of whether or not they were telling the truth so there were here's an instance where the press was not propelling the story right but actually questioning it so um which for the time was kind of rare it was uh and you know, whatever people want to say about the press today, uh, it's much more factually based than it often was in the 1890s. Right. Now, what is kind of interesting is that there were reports of a, what's his name, Professor Bayard. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, he did, in fact, demonstrate a flying airship fitting the description of what our, uh, our Arkansas lawman had observed at Nashville shortly later. Mm-hmm. Um, albeit... Maneuverability was achieved by heading into the wind, as uh, sailing ships had done for millennia. And uh, these reports have been assumed the work of a hoaxer hoping for his 15 minutes of fame. Now, uh, of course, another thing that would match these descriptions would be the U.S. Army dirigibles. Mm -hmm. But those didn't come into service until uh, a decade later, almost. Right, Uh, 1907. Right, so uh, exactly a decade. Mm -hmm. And I I got ten fingers, I can count. (laughs) We're still on the right track. <laughs> now, ironically, no one at this time, you know, even even anyone with Jules Verne or H.G. Wells' reading habits proposed that we were dealing with aliens or anything extraterrestrial. It was more in the form of anticipated technology. Right. But ironically, the airship scare does get tied up in UFO lore 60 years later in the 1960s. Right. And that is from one account of airship actually crashing. There were others of of them saying they crashed, but now the most infamous one is at Aurora, Texas. And the account that we hear about now is that it crashed, and that the the crew, the pilot and crew, were little green men. They basically were uh, gray aliens, as in the parlance today. Right. 
and that they died and the town buried them in the city cemetery. However, that didn't come about as a story until the 1960s, when we are in the midst of UFO right. stories. And you can't really go around digging up all the graves in a graveyard either, just to try and find some little green men. Right. And so I know there's been different accounts of where they're buried in the cemetery, that kind of thing. The city is not given permission to disinter anything. And I don't blame them there. No, no. And again, the description of the airship itself is... Uh, right along the lines of all these others. Right. So, uh, you know, basically a cigar-shaped dirigible or, or balloon. Self-propelled. Self-propelled in some yeah. way. And so it doesn't sound like an alien craft that's come across interstellar space. Definitely does not. No. But I think it got tied up, just the account of someone probably remembering, oh, you know, so, you know, Grandpa or whoever told me that... 1897, you had this crash, and it's been conflated now to include aliens. Right. And so something that had nothing to do with UFOs now does. So talking about aliens, Mm -hmm. let's kind of move on to something that's a little more relevant as far as modern pop culture goes. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, everybody talks about the UFO sightings, but what's the one thing that always comes up when we start talking about aliens and UFOs. Abduction, Abduction. whether you're being probed or experiments. Right. And this is uh, not uh, a... It's not something that you see popping up in Tales of Antiquity, um, per se. Per se, but there are corollaries. There, 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 there is a corollary of these stories to, you know, to lore through time of being kidnapped by, by the gods or the fae, etc. And certainly we all know uh, Zeus certainly um, was fond of kidnapping human women and having sets with them. Right. So through time and lore, there there has always been a, a thread of tales about the risk or the dangers of being captured or kidnapped, particularly taken into the other world right and usually they were cautionary tales too yes um something that uh you know to my understanding at least uh, a story to tell your children to uh come home before dark or to always uh do your chores and stuff exactly but it's uh you know and even in tales of old you you know it seems like you would Start with your cautionary tales or your parables or whatever you want to call them. And then you quickly go into the realm of people reporting being, you know, taken to another dimension or to the underworld or being visited by the fae or, or demons or other deities that uh, that they fear. And there's there's even uh, examples that are a little closer in time, a couple hundred years back, written about Rip Van Winkle. Right. Uh, it's, for example, it's the danger of going off into the to the forest and interacting with forest spirits or fae, etc. It's always something about the forest, too. Yes. Well, you know, the UFOs usually... Land in the middle of the forest. Forest or cornfield, so... Yep. Yeah, I think I prefer the forest to a cornfield, but <laughs> that's just my personal preference. But... 
the tales of the UFOs, we didn't have a lot of these close encounters of the third kind where you actually interacted with them until one particular case, and that would be the Barney and Betty Hill case. Right. In the so, early 60s. Yep. Yeah. September 19th, 1961. Barney and Betty Hill were uh, driving home from a vacation trip through the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Never been. I'm sure it's beautiful. When a distant flying light seemed to keep pace with the car. The light would get near them. Looming overhead is like a huge lighted disc-shaped craft. And that's, of course, at this point, you know, Roswell 1947 has happened. And that is the go-to popular depiction of a UFO. Yes. And as it's told, a series of beeps sounded and the craft vanished from sight. Now, when the witnesses reached home, they noticed that the time was some two hours later than they had expected. A spate of nightmares and anxiety-related health problems led the witnesses to seek medical and eventually psychiatric help. Now, a Dr. Benjamin Simon, a Boston psychiatrist, carried out hypnotic regression therapy on the hills, which is uh, even today still a, a very common uh, thing to do when you're working with people who are, are claiming to have been abducted. And he had them kind of relive those lost two hours associated with the UFO sighting. Now, according to that, it was a rather remarkable story where they had encountered a, a roadblock that was manned by you know, short beans with large heads and eyes, small ears and mouths, and hairless, ashen-colored skin, as, as it was described, which, of course, you know, the Little gray men. Yeah, alien grays. This kind of set the tone for a lot of stories of abduction. Mm -hmm. And it's also interesting to note, like you said, though, these are tales that are almost as old as time. Yes. Now, what, what's often reported with alien abduction is, uh, as you mentioned, uh, the probing. Mm -hmm. The probing. And there seems to be a very strange fascination with certain body parts. Yes. Um, Reproductive precisely and you know even even with the uh, the hills uh case it was reported that there was a and i quote a rather gruesome medical examination involved yes they reported that they were be, they're being talked to by these these uh beings you know telepathically you know they would hear the words but their mouths wouldn't move and of course all of this is is, is nothing that they consciously remembered right um and I mean, going off of some of the uh, the accounts of what happens during an alien abduction, I'd be rather thankful they wouldn't let me remember that. Yes, uh, you know, unless you, I guess, you know, start experiencing anxiety, etc., to the point that does interfere. I wouldn't want to remember that if I had to go through it. Precisely. And like I said, this kind of set the tone for the, the accounts uh, of alien abductions. And so much so that, you know, fast forward a couple decades... Mm -hmm. And you have, you know, you have movies being made about this sort of stuff. Uh, the X-Files. I was about to say, The X-Files, you know, probably one of the greatest TV series to, to ever run in, in that sort of uh, sci-fi vein. Yes, and definitely one of the best written TV series ever. Um, but, again, abduction plays a strong role, and that loss of control of your body and... Uh, your memory. I think I think it really plays on a very like deeply ingrained fear in, mm -hmm. in humans. You know, because we have control of our bodies. It's the one thing in our lives that we have dominion over, no matter what. Right. Unless something is severely wrong. Exactly. And I I think uh, it it's it's the notion that that's ripped away from you 
beyond your control. Mm-hmm. You know, because when you go into, you know, let's say you're getting a surgery done, you know what's going to happen. You expect that they're going to put me under, and it's not a big deal. Right. But it's it's that fear of whether it's, you know, a flying saucer coming in, and all of a sudden, you know, there's two, three hours of your life missing, and you're a nervous wreck, or... You know, you're getting visited by by fairies in the Fae in the mm-hmm. middle of the night. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's the same sort of ordeal. It, it's that uh, almost an evolutionary feel. It, it's a basic yeah. survival, like very primal. Exactly. Mm-hmm. No, I I agree, and and that kind of comes through. I find it interesting because that kind of experience translates very commonsensically, I think, to what tends to happen to the experiencer when they are uh, thinking about or reviewing this versus outsiders who are evaluating their claim. And from a sociological or folkloric perspective, people looking in, you you tend to have two camps. Um, You you tend to have ufologists who readily, you know, yes, this uh, this is alien abduction this is ufos this is ets this all happened and then you tend to have skeptics that are very ardent skeptics who say it's either a hoax or it was a dream none of this happened and ironically abductees who are affected the point of having anxiety etc don't have such a arbitrary reaction most of them they have a very definite unsettled feeling about their experience their memory and often it is after regression therapy but they aren't generally they are not committed to it was aliens or it was not aliens unless they were predisposed one way or the other right you know and i think that level of uncertainty kind of comes from the fact that you can't recall these events you Mm -hmm. know something happened you know you you know you were affected Mm -hmm. um but you don't know what or why right but you know it does kind of lend itself to the fact that our legends one you can either look at it that new legends are being created all the time that the legends surrounding ufos basically goes back to the you know 1947 and sprang from there or that basically we tend to have the same stories cast in the language and images of the day right and i'm not sure that they're mutually exclusive i wouldn't say they are yeah. Um, I, I think if you want to take the stance that uh, these are ETs, these are UFOs, these are, you know, actual things that are happening, mm-hmm. you know, why wouldn't they be happening a thousand years ago? Did ET have a an X on the calendar for like, oh, 1947, it's time to start doing this, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, and I, I do think a, a large part of it is, you know, you're, you're going to have the same story, you're going to have the same accounts, but it, it's told in the diction of the day. Right. You know, it, it's going to be told using what's familiar for the person telling the story. Yes. What what, what could be an explanation for this very unusual experience? Now, something unusual, we tend to try to frame in some sort of scientific term or empirical term. And I can't explain it either way. Maybe it's aliens. And, and that's not to discount that these things couldn't be happening. 
but that same experience hundreds of years ago would likely be attributed to the Fae or something else. Right, exactly. You know, another thing that may surprise people is that something that is also commonly associated with these kind of events today is Men in Black. Right. Which, again, is something that really has come about in the last 50 years. Mm Mm-hmm. Probably in the 1970s, I think, is when the first sort of gem genesis of those stories started. Right. And really, Men in Black share a lot of common characteristics of the Fae and the gods in mythology in the past. They are mysterious. They come in. They seem to be able to control people, be very suggestive, often move in unnatural ways. Their cars moving in unnatural ways, so that's only if they hit the red button. That's true. Yeah. Well, well, at least in the movie. But it kind of serves the same kind of purpose as far as lore goes. Right. And I do find that interesting. And I think I, I kind of wonder if part of the reason that pop culture focuses so much on Men in Black is that the military and the Air Force, in particular, until the last year or two, has pretty much ignored the subject or poo-pooed it, basically telling people these things don't exist or this is a hoax or you saw the planet Venus, uh, etc., to the point that people are going, there's enough accounts that something else is going on, so suddenly you get men in black injecting themselves. But... It is ironic that the military and the Air Force in particular really, in one fashion or another, was dealing with this subject, just Mm -hmm. not very publicly. Since 1947, you had Project Sign, you had Project Blue Book, and finally in the late 60s, 1969, I believe, the Condon Report, which basically came out and said "These these are not extraterrestrial events and you don't have anything to worry about which did not allay people's fears oh of course it didn't and anxieties so that's kind of the setting for the events in piedmont missouri which started february 21st 1973 and a lot of people it's kind of ironic because piedmont the piedmont event is really one of the most significant ufo events that we've had since Roswell. Since Roswell. Yeah. And is not widely known outside of UFO circles, which I find very interesting. Also, it's the first and only one that I know of that was subjected to a scientific field study in real time as the sightings were going on. Right. So the Ozarks really is front and center for research into UFOs. Absolutely. I mean... And so let, let's kind of get into Piedmont because, yeah. you, you know, it's like you said, we're talking about an event that outside of the ufologist sphere, mm-hmm. most people don't know about this. Everyone's heard of Roswell. People travel from all over the world to go visit Roswell, New Mexico. Mm-hmm. But people don't travel from all over the world to visit Piedmont, Missouri. At least I don't think so. Certainly not for these reasons. And when you think about it, there's actually a lot more uh, substance or provable substance that something happened there than at Roswell. I mean, of course, Roswell has that romantic notion of whether or not there was a crash. Right. But with Piedmont, there were over 500 reports 
over a number of months. <laughs> and this is an area that, again, as we were talking about the Fay earlier, it's heavily forested. <laughs> it's always in the woods. It's, it is more rural. Um, Wayne County, Missouri, you have two large lakes there. We won't even get into submersibles and <laughs> yeah, that, under, that, underwater UFOs. That's a whole other episode. Although, uh, uh, although uh, there have been a couple of personal accounts linking uh, the lakes around Piedmont to submersible UFOs. So, um, but that is another subject. So you do have that same general backdrop. Now there are Air Force bases very, very close. There's a military base um, not far from there near Cape Girardeau and then big Air Force base on the other side of the Mississippi because this is right close to the Mississippi River in Illinois. But how this started on February 21st, 1973, was Reggie Bone, was he was the high school basketball coach, and he and some players and a couple of the managers of the team were driving home after um, a game, I believe. They were driving along U.S. 60 near Ellesnore, about 20 miles south of Piedmont. Now, I've driven through Sisti through there a number of times. I have, too. Yeah. And I, I can attest that it's very rural. Mm -hmm. It's heavily wooded. Mm -hmm. um, and, I mean, and to give you an idea, at the time, you know, we're talking about you know, Piedmont, Missouri has a population of 1,500 people. Right. You know, uh, closer towns, which you can't even call towns, or villages, you know, mm -hmm. a, a, a couple hundred at most. So that that's your setting. So... Basically, what happened is they start, they see this, a bright shaft of light beaming down out of the sky. And then they turn off onto another road. And a few miles later, one of the, the players, uh, Randall Holmes, says, hey, look, there's that thing we saw back on Highway 60. So they pull the car over and they see what they term as a UFO mm -hmm. about 200 yards off the road and about 400 feet above the ground. Quote, we saw four lights that looked like portholes, red, green, amber, and white. We just stood there and watched it for about 10 minutes. Then all of a sudden, the lights went dreadfully up in the air with absolutely no noise and just disappeared over the hill. Right, which is a very fanciful telling. And, it, it is. And had it been just these people, mm -hmm. it might not have been very noteworthy. But... It just keeps going. And I will have to say, I had my own experience years ago that... And to be honest, I still... My brain still tends to say it must be military advanced technology that hasn't been made public. But it did move at a speed that I haven't seen anything come close to. Right. So I can't discount what they're saying well, absolutely entirely not. because I saw something similar to that that I can't explain. Well, Edith Boatwright in uh, Mill Spring, this is one of those little villages with a couple hundred people there, mm -hmm. about half an hour later saw, and I quote, a flashing light. I thought something had happened on the road. I could very plainly see a craft just clearing the utility wires. It was in a horizontal position. I think there were people in it. I could see objects inside, but could not make out any form of a person. It made a very quiet noise, like a whoosh, slowly and evenly. When it changed into a vertical position, it made a louder noise, like a, a quiet motor pulling. Hmm. It didn't have any chopper blades on top, like a helicopter, just some rotary-like blades in front, 
where an umbrella-like part extended up. It was about 30 or more feet long, very beautiful light colored body with a darker tail. Now, more UFO activity would occur at the Boatwright Farm with one landing behind the house. Mm -hmm. and, and actually, I do believe later on uh, during uh, Dr. Uh, Rutledge's uh, field study that they did research at the Boatwright Farm. Well, I mean, when you have a potential landing site, that's, I mean, that's ground zero for, for research. Oh, yeah. So let's uh, let's go to the next day, February 22nd. So, yeah, this is the next day. The next day, Roy and Beth Birch and Kathy Keith, they were all driving. They spotted an object blinking green, white, amber, and red, just like the basketball coach and, and the players saw. Mm -hmm. Now, Roy tried chasing the object but lost it. Others saw it as well, including Bob Smith, who looked at it through binoculars but could not make out a shape. So what I find interesting is you're seeing similarities in the accounts. You're seeing mm -hmm. the same colors being present. And mm -hmm. and I think it's interesting that, you know, amber is one of those colors. Right. That, that's a very specific tone that, you know, you see it, you know it. But for multiple sources to provide that exact one. And these are within a day of each other. Right. While it might be a small area, you know, like, you are talking about a rural area. Mm -hmm. You know, these, you know, out on the Boatwright Farm... You, I mean, you probably didn't hear about what's going on until you know, later. Until later in the week, if if not, you know, longer, because you're not gonna call up the basketball coach on your iPhone <laughs> and uh, you know be like, "What's going on?" You know, yeah. I saw something, and so, you know, I I think th those parallels are are very intriguing. I, I think so, too. And it, it only seems to get more intriguing. Yes. Um, and then, so, four days later, on February 26th, Pat Tooney and Will Freeman watched a luminous object moving over the trees near Tip Top Mountain. The UFO was about 500 yards away with solid prongs on it, which sounds a little bit like what Mrs. Boatwright described. Right. Um, a red light w was on it, so they saw a red light. So you are getting a lot of similarities, but not identical, which, again, is interesting, not necessarily in a bad way, because if the accounts were word-for-word -word alike, that tends to decrease the credibility right and so almost like there's a uh, you know a, there's a little a leaflet that yeah, everybody's <laughs> yeah. reading off of yeah. exactly now sightings continued almost nightly from february 21st to late april that's a lot well, that is a very long time for something like this to in, be going on in, in one area most were nocturnal lights, bright flashing lights far enough away witnesses could not discern the source. Some were more unusual. Earl Turnbow had three sightings. At 9 p.m. on March 1, 1973, he had just passed over a hill on Highway 49 when he spotted something lit up like a circus hovering over the road in front of him. The lights went out within seconds, and presumably the object escaped in the darkness. Well, you can't tell he was from the Ozarks. <laughs> Colorful. Very. Uh, and then on March 14th, he drove through the same area in a thunderstorm. He saw an amber, amber again, amber light hovering 30 feet above a field less than 200 yards from him. So again an object that's pretty close up and then he says he slowed down I, I slowed down and watched for five or ten minutes when the lightning flashed i could see a dome shape with sort of an antenna on top again very similar to two other accounts this amber light was shining 
from the antenna. All the other lights were off. I would say the thing was between 15 and 20 feet in diameter. It wasn't making any noise at all. He's describing it a little smaller than the other witnesses, but not that much different. So well, when you're talking about an object that's, you know, two American football fields away, judging the exact diameter of an object in the air at that distance, you, there's some guesswork involved. Yes. So then a week later, he says, he was feeding cattle at the farm just about dark, and I saw this thing come down over Brushy Creek. It was about a thousand feet in the air and shaped like a top. I couldn't tell if it was rotating or if the lights were just flashing. The lights were yellow, green, and red. They could have been portholes for all I know. The object sailed over the farm and didn't make a sound. So again, very similar. And then you have accounts from, you know... Uh, Ma Jeffries. Yeah, who's a photography high school teacher. Right, March 14th, uh, you know, a photographed a series of pictures of a, quote, small reddish ball high in the air. She spotted the object around 11 o'clock, and mounting a crown graphic 4x5 camera on a tripod, she took 10-minute time exposures, which unfortunately shows little more than a dot in the night sky. Same day... March 14th, Carl Laxton saw an object shaped, quote, like a barrel with protrusions like arms sticking out of it. And a quote, the only way I could see the shape of this thing was when the object seemed to tilt. A brilliant white light appeared to go behind it. The object was tilting from vertical to a horizontal position and then back to a vertical position again. Then it moved straight up and disappeared into the night sky. Which again is similar to the account with the baseball or the basketball team. Right. It's incredible how one the the length of time that this phenomenon is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you have when so when you have cases of mass hysteria, right? You know the the big things that come to mind to me are like you know H.G. Wells, War of the Worlds. You know, mm-hmm. you just tune into the radio broadcast and you're like, oh my God, the world's ending. <laughs> We're under attack. What do we do, honey? Grab the gun. Get the kids. You know. Right out the door. Exactly. But, the you know, typically these would be short things that would happen. Because it, yeah. it wouldn't be too long, especially, you know, with the War of the Worlds, before you realize, oh, it's just a radio radio show. Oh, okay. You know, and I can only think of a couple scenarios of mass hysteria, you know, where they last a long time. And the one I can think of, you know, it's not even sure that it was mass hysteria. You had the, the dancing plague. Oh. You know, what was it, in the 1400s. Right. And, that was so long ago that we have no way to know. And that could have been, yeah, I've, I've heard theories that it was ergot poisoning and it, things it, like that. All so. kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. But this is verifiably by a lot of people Yeah, repeatedly seeing these things. I mean, and from February to April. Yeah, and just, you know, account after account goes on into, say, you know, March, March 22nd. 4.30 p.m. Yeah, very specific, and not at night. Uh, Joe King of Mill Spring and Ron Miller of Piedmont, both students at Southeast Missouri State University, were traveling along Highway 34 near Patterson, eight miles east of Piedmont, when they noticed an oval-shaped object above the nearby treetops. The UFO was metallic in appearance, flat on the bottom with a dome on the top, which is, again, sounding like that other account, and was moving rapidly and leaving no vapor trail. So you keep getting very similar but not identical stories. It's very, very interesting. April 3rd, 1973, and this is a daylight sighting with physical evidence. Yeah. So Mrs. Raymond Stucker of Ellensnor, traveling down Highway 60 at about noon, 
quote, saw this thing in the air off to the side of the road. It looked like something I never saw before. It was round, with the exception of a dome on top. Three, one on top of the other. And it explains that this means the object had three pyramiding domes on top of uh, each one, uh, smaller than the one below it. Mm-hmm. It appeared to have a dull band or something going around the center. The bottom had something like a tripod landing gear. The object was hovering just above treetop level off to the right of the road. There is a possibility that it came up from the ground and stopped right above the trees. She said the UFO was silent and appeared to be made of what looked like aluminum. Two days later, she led officials to the area where they found trees in a 35-foot circle turned counterclockwise with some of their tips broken off. Geiger counters failed to pick up any unusual radiation, but they found a mysterious ash near the tops of the trees, although there was no evidence the trees had been burned. Yes, and which again goes back to... The chalky substances that were that were found, so... Yeah, so, and I believe on this that the IUFOB investigators are actually part of the project identification headed up by Dr. Rutledge. And so, let's get into that. Okay. Because I'm sure we could sit here all night and talk about all the different stories and accounts from, from Piedmont. Right. Um, but what really makes this interesting is that whereas you've had sightings of UFOs in some places that went on for days at Seltry, Gulf Breeze and Phoenix, etc. Mexico City, you know. Yeah. Um, but in this instance, basically as soon as it started, um, Dr. Harley Rutledge, who was the chairman of the physics department at... Um, Southeast Missouri State University at Cape Girardeau became interested and decided to do a field study and actually obtain grant funding from several sources for this and spent close to six or seven months in the field studying this and during a bunch of these accounts and going to the sites, going to the Boatwright farm, etc. And in one instance, they did find some elevated uh, radiation at one site that Sweet. they couldn't explain. There, There's some various photographic evidence which is included. And this, I mean, it's fascinating because this is the, this is the, and the only one that I know of, where you have scientists really looking at this from an empirical perspective, it resulted in findings that were turned into a book called Project Identification, the first scientific field study of UFO phenomena. If you can find it, I highly recommend it. And that's Um, a big if, unfortunately. Right. There are not a lot of copies. I I do have a copy, but uh, you do not see them even on the internet for sale very often. I'm just fascinated because it is a study in every sense of serious scientific examination that is usually used against witnesses and proponents of UFOs as, well, you don't have anything empirical. Right. And really the reason for that is we haven't devoted the resources to doing so, except basically in this instance. It amazes me that this isn't as well known as it ought to be. Well, it's because the government didn't do it. And everyone's <laughs> heard of uh, Project Blue Book. Well, yeah. And of course, inevitably, what did the government say about it? Either nothing or, it, you know, it doesn't exist. Up until recently. Up until recently, yeah. We, I, we won't even get into that. That's... No, no. Uh, very ironic. 
And I think that it is very important because project identification goes into a lot of detail about everything they did, what they found, and it's very honest when they, you know, something didn't have any findings or, or they couldn't make conclusions about a particular instance. But the conclusion was that there was something going on that, that they could not chalk this up to hysteria or misidentification etc. Too many factors lined up that there, that you had a real phenomena going on. Right. There, there was something there. Yeah. And uh, I think, honestly, I think we could devote an entire episode just to the findings from Project Identification. I think so too. I um, think we're going to have to do that. Definitely uh, definitely let us know. Uh, hit us up on Facebook and uh, you know, let us know if that's something you, uh, you, you want to see. Exactly. Well, uh, I, I had a good time tonight. I did too. I think uh, I think this is a subject that everyone knows. Uh, people get very opinionated on. <laughs> yes. Very opinionated on. But you know, it, it's uh, super prominent in in pop culture. And it has been for a, a very long time, mm-hmm. relatively speaking. You know, I, I think that it's a little gem of the Ozarks that we have one of the most significant significant events in the study of ufos it's almost like our own little uh our own little secret which it shouldn't be no um but we'll get into this we'll 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 make a an episode about this and you know it's gonna blow your mind it's absolutely it's it's crazy that and this was in the ozarks Mm -hmm. not in new mexico exactly exactly it's it's very very fascinating. Should we should we end by should we tell people our thoughts on UFOs? I think that a vast majority of UFO sightings can be explained away. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's there's always going to be someone out there that's uh, trying to pull a fast one with a hoax. You know, we, we we intentionally didn't really get into you know crop circles and anything like that. Right. But you know, I think that there are some phenomena that happen. That genuinely they are, for lack of a better term, paranormal. You know, mm-hmm. they they are out of the ordinary. You cannot explain them by any means that we currently have. And uh, you know, Piedmont being a great example of that. You know, this is a something that happened over months, seen by so many different people. And it, it's those instances where can I say that you know it was aliens? I can't because I don't know. Do I want to say that it was aliens? Part of me wants to say that it was aliens, <laughs> but the other part of me has to look at it from a empirical and scientific point of view. And mm-hmm. so, you know, when you're stumped, you're stumped. And right. it's those, those are the cases where that's where you pour your time and effort. I agree. And I, I'm pretty well line up with you there. I, I think we're foolish to say that UFOs are impossible to be occurring. Uh, statistically, I'm sure they're there are other civilizations out there that are spacefaring. Uh, whether they've made it here, I don't know. And even with my own experience, I cannot explain what I observed with the movement of the craft. And I saw it fairly close, within a couple hundred yards, right. about 50 feet off the ground. When it took off at about a 45-degree angle, it literally was out of sight in a fraction of a second. I still have never seen anything move like that. But on the other hand, it had a feel to it, looking at it, of very much a, a machine in the character that we make machines. In a manufactured sense. Right. And, and just the, the, 
I guess in the human sense of, of how we conceive of these things and how, how things work or look and so forth. Uh, so part of me says, oh, I can't explain it. Maybe, maybe it is alien technology. But part of me says it looked like a human-made machine. Right. So I'd like, I'd like to say it was, you know, was it? It was aliens. Yeah. But, and sometimes you, you'll never know. Right. And I mean, that's, uh, I mean, that's our motto is that sometimes there's no easy answers. Exactly. And so I'd just like to invite everybody to catch the podcast on the Branson Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or really any other podcast platform. I want to say thank you to everybody tuning in, listening to us. And uh, remember, there are no easy answers in the Dark Ozarks.